0: Welcome to Bold New Breed. This is Jane McConnell, and today I'm with Robin Vincent-Smith. Robin, can you introduce yourself a little bit?
1: Hello, my name is Robin. I've worked for MSF for almost 20 years. I started working in operations in our social mission in the field, as we say, as a logistician, which is a jack-of-all-trades and a master of none, essentially providing all the practical things that the medics need to do their work electricity, shelter, transport, security, water and sanitation, biomedical equipment, that, that kind of practical stuff. And then after that, I came to work in, in headquarters and I'm now in the role of program change and knowledge, which is a kind of logistician for soft skills. I help the organization with how it works together and how do we work together it is a way of through project management. That's how. We change things, processes and and policies, and that brings change. So it's change facilitation and linked to that is information and and knowledge management um, because we are a knowledge organization as much as everything else. We share a lot of our knowledge with ministries of health and partners locally and and doing that well and and also sharing internally with a very large organization. That's very important to us too. uh, And so that's where I am now.
0: That's great. And I think we're going to get into some details. I had some contact with MSF in Paris and actually met with teams, and we talked a bit about the digital environment they had, and so on. Mm. It was never a job, but I met some people there, and it's a very inspiring organization. Very inspiring.
1: Yeah, I think it is, but it's also an organization like any other, with all the same problems that any other organization has, and that's why it's interesting to talk to people like you, because you talk to lots of different organizations that have yeah. these same challenges, and it's this huge sixty thousand employees, and and with that come all the same issues and challenges. Yeah.
0: I did a big mindset survey in 2018 mm-hmm. and then I ran it again in 2021 because mm-hmm. a lot of people said to me, Jane, you have to do it again. Things have gotten a lot better because of mm-hmm. the pandemic, because of the lockdown. Things have improved a lot mm-hmm. and I haven't published any results yet. Some things have changed, not as much as people were suggesting to me, mm-hmm. at least not in the data that I got.
1: I'm trying to summarize what's changed for us. Certainly, We've been more inclusive in our decision-making and more inclusive in our strategic meetings. In fact, in all kinds of meetings, but I focus on the strategic ones because they're important because we can include more people around the table virtually and digitally than we could do physically Uh, and so before only those who had enough seniority and hierarchy to pay for a plane ticket had a a, a space around the table and now Uh we can include anybody with an internet connection Uh, a good internet connection is still a major barrier in the places many of the places we work and so let's say it's Mm -hmm. not doesn't open up to everybody but it opens up to a lot more people and typically we'd have general assembly and it would be oriented towards a face-to-face audience and built around a face-to-face audience and mainly the people in the room who participated could really contribute to the meeting but now it's all online and so it's built around an online audience and I think going forward will go hybrid and regardless of whether you're an online participant or a face-to-face participant you'll be treated equally that's what we're striving <laughs> for this balance going forward and so that certainly made a difference I think the other thing that it's made a big difference to as well is we had to travel a, a lot. We, we chose to travel a lot for meetings, but it was quite unsatisfying. You would catch an early plane uh, to somewhere in Europe, work all day and then run back to catch the late plane back. And, and you wouldn't really have spent the time to build trust and to get to know people, whereas uh, now we. If we're going to travel, we travel to get to know people and build trust. And then we do all the work online. Uh, and so we meet a lot less often. But when we meet, or hopefully this is COVID, when we start to meet again, we'll be meeting to build relationships rather than to, uh, to actually do any work. And the work, we've got good at doing the work online. So that's uh. changed. I, I can't prove it yet because we can't travel yet. But what I do know is I hardly ever go to the office anymore. I've been working for home since March last year because I'm based in Belgium. And these are the rules for the Belgium. Yeah but now when I go to the office occasionally over the summer it won't be with my computer to work it'll be to meet people and to build trust and to build relationships and that's all I'll do and then when I actually have to produce and do work and be operational I'll do all that all virtually uh, and yeah. it's quite efficient to do that so that's in a very kind of office function. and then it'll be the same with European travel or international travel I will travel less and do as much as I can remotely and only travel when I need to build relationships. And so if there's a new entity somewhere and uh, I need to meet them for the first time because I've not met them before. And even that, I think um, it's possible to build relationships exclusively online, where that's not something we would have considered before, but now it's possible mm. to do that. So it's changed the way we do business, allowed us to be more inclusive, to get more diverse voices around the table. It's ramped up everything to do. We, had, we already had pre-COVID online communities of practice and forums where communities of practice can meet. but That's really taken off. A lot. It's flattened the organisation to a large extent as well, because um, uh, more people can participate and more voices are heard. Often it would be the same old voices, the senior uh, voices. Now it's more inclusive. I'm not saying it's a complete revolution, but it's definitely a step progress in in the a direction we've been wanting to go in anyway for years. And it's certainly it's helped that. I'm very positive about it. I think. And mm. I think the other thing it's helped is we adopted MSF Office 365 as a solution mm. for uh, our digital workspace. Most people were still using Outlook, which is the kind of desktop version of email. It's it's like driving a Ferrari in first gear. There's just so much more you can do with Office 365 and it's all online. So we've we've all got a lot better at using that. And where we hit the limit, in fact, was this. Actually, Teams doesn't do what Zoom Pro Meeting and Zoom Pro Webinar does. Yeah. Uh, And the one role that I've really played the most in the last year is DJ Zoom. Zoom Pro Webinar and Zoom Pro Meeting were tools which we introduced and I run a community of Zoomers who who basically facilitate online exchanges. So with my knowledge management hat on, knowing that much of the knowledge uh, that we have is not explicit in people's heads and where is that knowledge exchanged, it's exchanged during meetings. My main knowledge management drive at the moment facilitating online meetings is, is DJ Zoom. That's what I've been for the last year really.
0: Is your role primarily one of knowledge management
1: then? My job title is Program Change and Knowledge Manager. And so I was recruited to to set up a a PMO, a project management office, Mm -hmm. specifically for headquarters projects, not field projects like a hospital here or a vaccination centre there. That's what I mean by a social mission project. But more headquarters projects like an office move or an ERP deployment or a new tool to do this or a new process on how, how we employ consultants and stuff like this. That's what I was hired to do. but then. With that comes a lot of change facilitation because these projects bring change. And then I added knowledge to my job title about four years ago. And so we have a a, a transversal group, the Information and and Knowledge Management Steering Committee across all departments. And we we try and coordinate and organize all our initiatives to to become more of a learning organization to better organize our explicit knowledge and better organize our knowledge exchange. So. I work around those three spheres, project management, change facilitation, and and information and knowledge management. I work for the general director, so it's centrally placed under the DG office.
0: Do you come across the comment that when knowledge or information is exchanged verbally, there's no trace of it, Hmm. and that it's better for things to be documented?
1: Yeah, and I think it's much more nuanced than that. I think it's certainly true to say that we should produce guidelines and guidance in a written format, because that's how a lot of people consume knowledge still in the old traditional way. You pick up a guideline and you read the guideline, and that's still a very important part of the support we provide to the staff that work uh, in our social mission. How do you set up a cholera camp? How do you do waste triage of medical waste triage and, and things like this? And so that's a very important part of what we do, and I wouldn't want to stop it. But I think in addition, we need to create spaces where knowledge can be exchanged orally. So this is the communities of practice that I was talking about, whether they be online forums or whether they be webinars or or face-to-face events. And so I think both are important. And yeah, some of it's recorded media as well. So there's a lot more video production going on these days. And we launched uh, a couple of years ago an an online personal learning environment. That means there's a lot of self-learning courses available where there weren't before and a lot of videos uploaded there. So I think it's a, a big a spectrum and we consume knowledge in, in many different ways, traditionally by reading guidelines, but also through oral exchange and also through watching multimedia, I think. And so you need to offer everything. So typically right. when we publish a guideline with a knowledge asset, then it won't come out just as a PDF for 500 pages. There'll be webinars accompanying it. There'll be discussions, forums to discuss around it. And it'll be socialized. I like that word. It makes a lot of sense to me. You'll socialize these knowledge assets as much as you can. So I think it's it's got to be everything. And and and. If it was all right 15, 20 years ago just to have the paper file, it's no longer all right today, I don't think. You need to talk about it. You talked to me about
0: outsourcing internally. And you said that you call for volunteers to work on, you talked about diversity, equity, and inclusion as an example. And you say staff bring their motivation. You said only bring their motivation. I think by only you mean they don't have necessarily training or developed official skills in that area no and no. for me that's a very gig mindset
1: yeah i can really see how it fits but i think 10 15 years ago and this was, it was more so when i was working on the project management office and setting that up classically when we had a problem we'd recruit somebody that would be our knee-jerk reaction it'd be problem equals new fde but then what happens is you just the headquarters just grows and grows and grows and grows to the point that there's too many of you there's Two ways to rationalize that kind of knee jerk reaction. One is to recognize that within the existing body of staff, there's a huge amount of untapped knowledge because everybody brings different life experience and work experience uh, and personal experience uh, from all over the world. And much of the time, you can solve many of your problems just leveraging the existing collective intelligence within the organization. That's definitely the first place to start. And then, secondly, you can by consultancy, and if you do so intelligently, then you can import that knowledge within to the organisation. I think those have been the two tactics that we've been using as an alternative to just simply hiring somebody to look at the problem. And often it's a progression. I take climate, environment, and health. So we've been interested in the intersection between the climate uh, and climate change and the environment and environmental degradation and the impact on the health of the patients we serve for many Mm -hmm. years. And yes. we started by simply building an internal MSF staff community of practice around that. There's now several hundred of us involved in that. I started it four or five years ago after a coffee with uh, somebody in, in London, Carol, and we've been managing it ever since. We, we started hitting the limits of what we knew internally. There were questions to which we, we could not find the answers internally because nobody had the expertise. So as an example, we just participated for the last two years in in the the Brussels ecodynamic certification process, which certifies the office building as an ecodynamic office that conforms to legislation around the environment and fulfills a whole series of criteria about good practice in terms of environmental responsibility. And with that process came external consultancy for free, actually, so that we didn't have to pay for that. So that was great. And then the next stage is we're probably going to hire an internal FTE uh, on uh, uh, climate, environment, health, and sustainability to kind of coordinate and organise all actions going further because we want also to halve our carbon footprint by the 2030 in line with the Paris Agreement. So quite often it's it's a progression. Whereas before we would have just hired the person. Do you see what I mean? Mm. And, and and now it's so much more powerful because we've already leveraged internal uh, knowledge and we've already built a community around climate, environment, health. We've already learned from external consultants we've tapped into external consultancy so we've already got that that network built and now finally when a climate environment health person is hired then they've already got this existing network infrastructure that they can leverage and they've got a much higher chance of success because often they used to start and say Uh, they're on their own and how the hell do they work but now it's much easier And and gdpr is another good example there legally we were eventually obliged to hire a dpo a data protection officer because because we had to do so legally we did so but because he hadn't gone through this process of leveraging internal knowledge and then starting to get consultancy he's landed and he's ah he feels a bit lonely and he's not nearly so impactful as he could be because it's not built up as an internal movement So I think there's great advantages in sourcing, if that's what you want to call it, or internal outsourcing as a first step. And often for some of these things, I'm trying to think of other policies that we've worked on over the years. We worked on values of the organization because we've got the MSF Charter, which is values that we uphold towards our beneficiaries, our patients, impartiality, neutrality and independence. It's written in our charter. But we didn't really have anything that described how should we interact amongst ourselves, the staff for MSF. And so we just ran an internal consultation process uh, amongst the thousands of staff. And they all chose words that were important to them. Respect, empowerment, trust, transparency, uh, accountability and integrity. Those were the top voted ones out of 150 or so. And then we used those and they wrote their own definitions, not the dictionary definitions of those six words. But what, what does that mean to you? And gave some practical examples. And this document is now our our operational center, Brussels values documents. And that was it. Whereas before, if you if we'd subcontracted that entirely to an external organization, I'm not sure we would have got the same buy in or the same result. The first step should be to ask ourselves, if you have a problem, let's ask ourselves, let's try and brainstorm around it ourselves and just leverage the existing collective intelligence of the organization. And the most recent example is the diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're just, we're just asking ourselves what we think. Yes, we've hired a consultant uh, to help on the answer, but the bulk of the work is being done by internal staff. And, and they're all doing it on the side of their classic day-to-day job descriptions. And that's more rewarding for them as well. I think if people come just to do their job description, there are limits to that. But if you give them opportunities to get involved in climate, environment, health, diversity, equity, inclusion, whatever it might be, data protection and privacy, if that's what they like, et cetera, it could be whatever, then it's more enriching for them. But that means that indeed that takes time away from their day jobs. So you, you, their managers have to be comfortable with the idea of uh, and when you work for MSF, uh, there's a percentage of your time focused on what you do on your day to day. And there's a percentage of your time, which is contribution to the wider uh, movement. But that's, I think it's pretty cool because it's in our DNA anyway, because the, the way it works every now and then big emergencies come along. Mm -hmm. haiti uh, earthquake uh, tsunami uh, in indonesia covid ebola and then when that happens we have got this surge capacity where we we, um, retask lots of people who are working in support function positions into direct operations and so it's in our dna to take a step back from your day-to-day work and contribute towards something else for a period of time and so i think yeah that's why it works to do this internal outsourcing if that makes sense as well
0: you know as yeah as you were talking. And I was thinking that when you did all that preliminary work on the diversity, equity, and inclusion, for Mm. example, I bet the person you hired at the end had a different profile than the person you would have hired at the beginning.
1: Very probably as well. I'd not thought of that, but indeed, it certainly helps you choose your profile. I think you've worked at all the hard work. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Most of the companies that I have worked with and that I just exchange with talk about the fact that a lot of the senior managers perceive behaviors of gay mindsetters or nonconformists or whatever you want to call them, they perceive it as deviant behaviors that are Mm. not in line with the, the way that people should be working. And they don't have a concept at all of positive deviance. That's to say differences that are actually positive for the organization. Does that ever happen at MSF?
1: Yeah, I, I think obviously it varies between managers, but I think there's certainly a tolerance for for out-of-the-box deviant thinking. And uh, you see it sometimes in the hires that are made. Some people are hired and you think, my God, that person's a complete deviant. Uh, and so they're, they're a non-conformist. And, and you think it's great that we, we've had the, I don't know, maturity, I think, uh, to be able to hire uh, a non-conformist. and. and we push very hard for diversity within the organisation, and with diversity comes non-conformism. Yeah. And we're pushing very hard. You see a lot of the new hires, and it's in line with diversity, equity, and inclusion. We started in France 50 years ago, and then it's basically been a European-centric organisation for a long time. And now that's shifting. Uh, it shifted 20, 30 years ago when we started hiring more staff internationally, and we opened up all these partner sections across the world. But it's even more so now because we're, we're decentralizing, we're, we're opening up our operational center in Africa now, in West Africa for mm. the first time. Up until now, the operational centers have been based in Europe. And you see increasingly non-European staff in management positions. And My position is a bit particular because I don't have a team. I'm just on my own and I'm a kind of a white van man for the general directorate. I get things done for the general directorate. I've got quite a lot of autonomy and freedom. And am I a deviant? I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, if I, if I think something is important to the organization or brings value to it, then I'm not shy about expressing myself. And the whole climate, environment, health thing is a good example. Nobody asked me to do that. And I've invested a lot of my time over the last few years in it. And, and that's cool.
0: Are you a medically trained doctor?
1: No. And MSF, about 50% of us are medics. And the other 50% uh-huh. are, are all kinds of different support staff, finance, admin, supply chain management technicians. I worked for 10 years in the field as as what we'd call a logistician and maybe the closest thing you can compare it to in western culture would be perhaps a facilities manager and that was my job for for 10 years and now in headquarters I do the same thing in so much but it's not the the tangible practical things because here in Belgium you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. The the service provision is there if you need to do a waste management you just buy waste management services or the government offers them. It's more a kind of soft side of things Uh, and so uh, hence project change and knowledge management it's facilitating how we work together as an organization Mm. that's really what i concentrate on
0: i think that's harder than the physical logistical
1: yes i think it is it was easy to build a water tower i knew that was clear clear guidance and if you look in the uh, the The QNFIN framework, simple, complicated, complex and chaos. You're definitely in the complex and the chaos. uh, And you have to work in a more agile, iterative fashion rather than in the kind of simple and complicated in the more classic waterfall fashion.
0: I don't know if it was UNHCR or the people I met at MSF way, way back, but there was a rule or an unofficial guideline that people in headquarters couldn't stay there over a certain number of years unless they went out and they also had work in the field.
1: Most of the senior cadres are recruited because they've got field experience, and it's a kind of red right. line, but not all because I think it's also sensitive to bring in outside expertise. And so I think it would be wrong if we were just you have to do field experience. And so you see it in mm-hmm. recruitment. And you see it in staff mobility, where where all staff are encouraged to go back through the field or to visit the field, et cetera. I mean, there's generally a pause when people have got small children. that's my case, and, but then when the children grow up, people cycling back through again to the field. So you see it there as well. and it's certainly culturally it seems important. and it's quite hard for people who've not been to the field or to, sure. or worked in operations to, to establish themselves. But, but it's getting easier now. I think people recognize expertise brought from them externally. So that's certainly true.
0: I know in most organizations, I know there's almost always a very big gap between the people who are in the offices. They may be central or central within a country, mm. and the people who are on the front lines of whatever it is that the business does. Mm. And there's a, there's a big gap in that the people on the front lines often have, I see it as a digital divide, and then mm. they have less access to digital services than do people who are office-based. That's mm. changing a bit with mobile Slowly, and yeah. mobile mm. apps. Mm. But for a long time, they were pretty much disconnected from the rest mm. of the organization. Did you mm. see that?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I think because of what I've just explained, because people are working headquarters, especially those, the bulk of them have field experience. And so I think there was that very strong connection. And we've got these things like all staff meetings every Monday and we do a tour of the operations and you hear what's happening in the field and you can very much relate to it because you've been in that situation yeah, for example, one of our colleagues, three of our colleagues were shot in Ethiopia recently and everybody could mm-hmm. relate to that because they've been in situations where they've uh, lost colleagues themselves or uh, been nearby when it's happened to somebody else, etc. And so you can feel it's very emotional and that there's very strong connection and a little solidarity with what's going on in the field. So I think mm-hmm. the difference recently is just because of the internet, we've been able to... Uh, like I explained at the beginning, include more people in strategic and operational meetings that we we wouldn't normally have been able to include them because we'd have had to fly them to a European headquarters and then back again. And so you only do that occasionally because it's expensive Mm. and time-consuming, time time out of the operations, and and it has a carbon footprint as well. It feels like we're more globally connected now. Previously, for example, at our all-staff meetings, the only people that were present and the only people that intervened were people physically in Brussels. Now we get interventions from all over the world because it's all virtual. And, and and that's, so we feel more connected, I think. We get témoignage, we call it witnessing. Uh, instead of, for example, a, a senior manager in Brussels saying, okay, in Haiti, uh, there was a shooting incident. And it'll be actually the person on the ground who says, yeah, we've just been shot at. So it's, it's much more raw and, and, and real when you hear it directly from the people who've witnessed it. So that's great to be able to do that, I think. So we were already connected before, but we're even more connected now, I'd say um that's interesting and, and yes yeah we do have mandated directors positions so you, you can only do it for six years and then you're out you have to do something else but interestingly a lot of directors when they finish with the MSF they then go back to the field and they then go back and work in operations again or in, in, in other supporting roles so there's a lot oh, of yeah. ex-directors knocking around which sometimes is good but sometimes it's not great either because then I mean, you get this kind of cluster at the top of the uh, organization and you want them all to leave to so make some space for some others uh-huh. but, uh,
0: yeah I was just wondering if people tend to stay at MSF for a long time.
1: Usually there are people who do the whole career in MSF, me, for example, and there are those who come for six months decide so it's not for them and off they go. Yes. Those who do three or four years, it's varied. When you're talking about field work, it's often linked to personal circumstances. You have to sacrifice quite a lot when you go and work as an international staff because you yeah. leave behind family, friends. We encourage people to stay a good few years in headquarters positions because you bring more value the longer you stay, I think.
0: Yeah, Yeah. it's been really interesting. I think we've reached the end of our conversation, Robin. I want to thank you very much for your time. I hope that you have found this conversation relevant for yourself.
1: Thanks very much. It's always good uh, to talk um, about the work that I do for MSF from a different perspective, from an external perspective. uh, The kinds of questions you ask make me think about the work that I do. So that's been a a useful experience for me. Thanks, very much.
0: Great. I'm glad you feel that way. And I'd like to thank all of the people who've listened to this podcast and uh, recommend that you pop on over to my website, bolenewbreed.com. Uh, where you can see the show notes for this episode along with all the other previous episodes.